Domestic violent extremism has become one of the biggest threats to law enforcement and members of the public. In the past few years, individuals affiliated with anti-government and white supremacist groups have attacked houses of worship, grocery stores, demonstrations, and even law enforcement officers themselves. As a result, combating domestic violent extremism is a priority for law enforcement at every level in this country. Today, we're joined by John Cohen, who most recently was a coordinator for counterterrorism and assistant secretary for counterterrorism and threat prevention for the United States Department of Homeland Security. John has over three decades of experience in law enforcement, counterintelligence, and homeland security, and he's held numerous high-ranking government positions over his career. I'm Patrick Yost, National President of Turtle Auto Police, and this is The Blue View. Well, John, thank you for joining us today on The Blue View. Uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, first, it's great to be here uh, with you today. Um, so I've spent the last 38 years working in law enforcement, homeland security, counterintelligence. Uh, I've had a, worked at the federal, state, and local levels of government. I've served as a police officer out in Southern California, a federal agent, but also worked on Capitol Hill, uh, and in various presidential administrations, uh, both Republican and Democrat. And most of my career has been spent uh, working with law enforcement uh, at the frontline levels, as well as the chief executive level to deal with a broad range of complex uh, crime and terrorism related threats uh, facing communities across the country. But John, how, how would you describe the uh, your present situation here in this country, the, the violence we see uh, just really escalating across this country in the landscape of extreme terrorism right now? Yeah, I mean, I have to say, and I've said this publicly before, uh, in, this is the most complex, volatile, and I would say, quite frankly, dangerous threat environment uh, I've experienced in uh, the almost four decades that I've, I've been involved in this profession. Uh, we are dealing, we're in the midst of a, a significant trend in the United States right now where we are seeing a, a constant number of mass shootings or acts of targeted violence uh, conducted by individuals who feel disconnected from society, who uh, are searching for a sense of life meaning, they're, they're angry, uh, and they've determined that the best way to express that anger is through the use of violence. We've seen violence, at violent attacks um, directed at locations and individuals because of their race, ethnicity, uh, immigration status, uh, their religious beliefs, um, and their profession. And increasingly, we're seeing these acts of violence being directed at um, government officials from both sides of the aisle, uh, elected officials, uh, and law enforcement. Uh, it's a threat environment that is fueled uh, by a online and media ecosystem that is saturated uh, with conspiracy theories uh, and uh, other content that's placed there purposely by foreign intelligence services, uh, foreign terrorist group, domestic violent extremists, criminal organizations, and their intent uh, in posting this content and amplifying this content is to, uh, in part, uh, not only sow discord amongst our populace and undermine confidence and credibility uh, in our government institutions, including uh, undermining uh, the credibility and confidence in, in police departments and local sheriff's offices around the country, but they're also trying to inspire violence. So it's a, it's a very complicated uh, threat environment. And, and, and that's, you know, we're dealing with an extremism threat that I think is unlike 
anything we've dealt with post 9-11, but we're doing it at a time where local law enforcement agencies are stretched thin, they are lacking resources, they're dealing with increased violent crime uh, fueled by gang violence and drug trafficking, Um, they're dealing with cyber attacks being directed at their infrastructure uh, and uh, individuals within their communities. So we're dealing with a highly volatile terrorism threat environment and domestic violent extremism environment. At the same time, police departments and local sheriff's offices are having to deal with a broad range of what I'll call traditional uh, law enforcement issues. So it's it's a very troubling time. And no doubt, uh, you know, we just uh, had the uh, the statistics released for for the first uh, nine months of this year, the amount of law enforcement officers that were shot in the line of duty. But but equally as alarming is the amount of ambush attacks on law enforcement officers that are and, and they, they just the, the uh, such an extreme now of of law enforcement officers being attacked simply because of the color of their uniform. And I'm glad you, you know it's 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 clear that technology. Or, or the inability for for people to communicate through social media platforms is is playing a huge factor in this. So I've always felt that uh, what we had is a you know people that had really uh, um, you know adverse uh, uh, feelings towards individuals, including law enforcement. I use that as an example. I use it quite often. Uh, but what social media has also done, in addition to the things that you've identified, is allowed people to build a community around their own thought structure and support their own ideology. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're exactly right. You know, my last position in government, um, which uh, lasted until April of last of, of this year, I was the head of intelligence at the Department of Homeland Security, and I was also the counterterrorism coordinator. So I led all of our counterterrorism operations. And I can't overstate the role that social media uh, and other internet-based communication platforms play uh, in enabling uh, criminal organizations and those who wish to undermine confidence in the U.S. uh, and democracy generally, and who wish to inspire acts of violence directed at law enforcement, um, they they have fully incorporated into their methods of operation the use of online platforms. What concerns me a little bit is as I look at investigative practices, you know, whether it's a patrol officer uh, responding to a call for service, um, you know, domestic violence or some other type of call for service or an investigation into drug trafficking or or human smuggling or sex trafficking, uh, or even assessing the risk posed by an individual whose behaviors have led uh, folks to report uh, that person to a local law enforcement agency. I don't believe we have, to the degree we need to fully incorporated what we understand about the role of social media and how it's influencing people's behavior into those uh, response and investigative processes. And I see that as a major gap. To your point about ambush, encounters. You know, I'm really troubled by that. And I've had some conversations with some of the major associations, you know, FOP and others. And by the way, congratulations to FOP for this this great work because it's really important. Um, At the same time, we're seeing an increase in these types of what I'll call, you know, ambush encounters, lethal lethal acts of violence directed at patrol officers, you know, responding to a call for service or involved in self-initiated activity. We're also seeing an extraordinarily significant increase in the promotion of online content calling for targeted attacks against police. You know, and we're seeing this on anti-government sites, on white supremacist sites, as far as, as, long, as well as anarchist sites. 
And, and when I say that th this content is troubling, that's, that again is an understatement because you know, an example uh, of the type of content we're seeing introduced and spreading, spreading across the ecosystem and being consumed by thousands of people, an example would be a one minute video um, with a uh, background music uh, from a song called Kill the Police. The video starts with a slide that says violence is the solution. And then it, the rest of the video are vignettes of police officers, you know, many in the United States, some in other countries, being executed, being lit on fire, being, um, uh, you know, being shot, uh, being subject to an ambush. We're seeing content that's being posted online and being consumed by thousands of people uh, that talk about the need to target law enforcement and describing the types of techniques that should be used in targeting law enforcement. So at the same time, we're seeing an increase in, in ambush uh, encounters, we're also seeing the proliferation of this content. And one of the things that would be interesting to look at is as we are conducting investigations into whether they be lethal encounters or, or non-lethal encounters with police, uh, with law enforcement, would be interested to start looking at how many of these suspects are being influenced by the content they're consuming. We, we still have that as sort of an investigative question gap, I would say, where you know, we learn a lot about the suspects post-event, but what we're not looking at is how they're being influenced by what they see online. Yeah, it, it uh, actually goes a little further, I guess. Uh, you know, you, you, if, and a lot of it has to do with desensitizing, uh, you know, desensitizing people to real life uh, consequences for their actions, uh, which just plays a role too. Um, but just uh, just last night, uh, we had a uh, uh, an individual terrorizing a community. It was was going around doing Facebook Live uh, of his uh, of his carnage. Uh, so so it we were kind of entering a new a whole new era here where technology is changing at such a pace that uh, that it's it's enabling and and in a lot of ways encouraging and and glor you know glorifying uh, this this very violence. Are there some of the media companies that uh, social media platforms, I mean, it, it seems to me that they have a, a strong social responsibility uh, for their content as well. What are some of the challenges we have with, uh, with the present media companies and maybe some examples of, of, uh, of how these challenges have really hampered our ability to do it? You know, uh, technology is constantly evolving uh, and, and our approach to it has to constantly evolve as well. We're always a step behind. You know, that's a really good point. I mean, there's a number of challenges. Challenge one is a lot of the laws that law enforcement depends on um, for access to information uh, communications, those laws were written, you know, when we were still relying on analog communication technologies, right? And, and the, the drafters of the, that legislation, you know, probably didn't even anticipate um, the types of technologies uh, that were would be that are in play today. And as you pointed out, the laws are not flexible enough at times to take into account how rapidly technology evolves. So that's that's one challenge. Second challenge is that, you know, I think we we oversimplify at times how criminal organizations uh, and even those who are engaged in in targeted attacks or mass casualty attacks or gang violence are using social media. And sometimes in some cases, uh, these communication capabilities Will, will will be used to for an individual to articulate their intent to engage in violence. In other cases, um, content is being placed there by groups or individuals, foreign and domestic, who want to influence uh, those who are in our those in our society who are vulnerable to 
um, or who are looking for the justification to go out and engage in a target attack. In other cases, uh, we see uh, these platforms being used uh, as a way for uh, a gang member or someone else to bring visibility into their act of violence. Uh, and they will often post photographs or videos or even live stream um, their illegal activity or violent activity. Um, and there's important evidence um, and information that can be used um, to, to respond to an attack that may be only available by looking at uh, the social media uh, activity. Uh, and then finally, it's the way people are reporting crime these days. You know, increasingly we're seeing people not pick up the phone and call 911 when they're witnessing a crime, but they'll video it and post it. Uh, and there are cases where the first uh, notice to a law enforcement agency that a crime was in progress, uh, a very serious and violent crime, uh, was that they picked up the social media posting. So we really need to think more broadly from a law enforcement perspective, how we are going to look at the information that's available through these platforms. As far as the platforms, you know, I think there's a lot more that they can be doing, but I also think uh, that uh, they're not the answer to the problem necessarily alone. Uh, there, there's a lot of work they can do from a perspective of deplatforming people or redirecting people or evaluating the, the advanced computing algorithms they use to funnel people to content um, th that may, you know, as we have seen with the rise of the Boogaloo movement and, and, and other extremist organizations, may actually drive people to um, extremist ideological belief systems. So they can do more policing their own, no pun intended, but policing their own platforms. Um, where I think the greatest value will come, though, is improve, opening the aperture for law enforcement, again, I mean, doing it in a way and doing it in a way, of course, that's protective of privacy and civil liberties, but opening the aperture for law enforcement to be able to evaluate as part of their violence prevention activities uh, or investigative activities, the content that's being placed online. And I think that's where we still have a lot to go, a far, a long way to go, excuse me. Um, one, we need to open the aperture, again, with very specific rules and, and protocols that protect privacy and civil liberties. But we, the law enforcement needs access to those activities that are taking place online. And law enforcement also has to understand how it fits into um, the prevention investigative work. And, and I think that's still a gap as well. Um, you know, understanding how you know, a, a media operation associated with Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State is using content to, to inspire and inform tactically uh, loan offender attacks in the U.S. is important. And it's important for a patrol officer to understand that because they may be responding to a call for service. They may be involved in self-initiated activity. They may be making observations in their community. And without that knowledge and understanding, it's going to be difficult for them to place those observations or that information they receive into context. So we have a long way to go with the, the companies, um, but we also have a long way within our profession, a long way to go within our profession. Uh, incorporating the wealth of knowledge that's available through the analysis of online activity into our violence prevention and investigatory practices. You know, there's a uh, look. We could we could talk for probably a couple of hours here because there are actually uh, feeds. There are social media platforms that are are clearly the the, the entire intent 
is to uh, is to, to to disrupt in 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 a violent nature. I mean, I simply look at the uh, supermarket shooting in New York and the uh, the postings that were done in in, in in you know in a platform that that really encouraged that type of activity. Um, there is there is a, a whole different world out there that a lot of the public doesn't understand, but they are building a community around themselves of uh, justifying their their violent actions. So, um, any thoughts on that? On those platforms? Yeah, no. I mean, I think I think you raise a really intriguing point. I mean, if you look at the larger platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Google, um, they, they've done a lot of work. Um, um, to, uh, as I as I mentioned earlier, to to understand what's going on within their environments uh, and to address security related issues. But again, even with those companies that have been most cooperative, we have to understand that you know they have a revenue generation model. They have a business model that depends on people staying on their platforms for long periods of time so they can sell advertising. Uh, or collect data from those people. So they're always, you know, going to be balancing the need to keep people and keep content on their platforms with the the good citizen responsibilities of of working with law enforcement and others to um, remove harmful content. The other issue that I think makes this challenging is there's a lot of concern about these platforms playing the role of being the arbiters of free speech. Um, Yes, they have authority because they are privately run companies to decide who's on their platform or not. But we've already had a lot of discussion in our country about those who feel they're being excluded from these platforms simply because they hold views that may not be popular uh, or uh, may be, um, um, you know, may others may find repugnant, but still be protected by constitutional protection. So, so that's part of the challenge. But putting those platforms aside, we have you know, growing, uh, you know, on a day-to-day basis, other types of platforms uh, and, and private online communities where there's a lot of, um, a lot of conversation taking place uh, that has a direct relationship with, um, with the violence we're seeing in communities. I mean, look, when I was a police officer working in, in, in Southern California, when one gang member wanted to threaten a gang member from another part of the city, they would spray paint their name, their moniker on the wall. They would cross it out. They put the numbers 187, which is the California Penal Code for section for homicide. And that was their way of threatening somebody. Today, gang members and gangs, street gangs, have Facebook pages or other social media presence. And they use that platform to challenge other gangs, to threaten other gangs, to to project their strength uh, and their street cred. And it creates potentially cycles of violence where you will have a threat, you'll have an act of violence, you'll have a posting regarding that act of violence, it'll be consumed by the those targeted, it will result in a responsive act of violence. And, and it's been described to me by folks in Chicago and, and other cities that are seeing this as almost like a spasm of violence. And quite frankly, it's very difficult to work with all those different platforms those, those, those smaller platforms, um, because one, they don't necessarily have the resources to deal with these issues, or they don't have the inclination. So it's a really, really, really complicated issue. The other thing I would say, you know, that I think is really important is just as we have a pretty broad cross-section of people who, in our communities, who are being influenced by this, this, this inaccurate or this, this, 
these is in other content, you know, conspiracy theories and other content that are intended to be disruptive in our society. Um, law enforcement's not immune from that as well. Uh, and we see, uh, you know, there, I've been involved in a lot of discussions where we will see across the rank infrastructure, you know, sheriffs, police chiefs, all the way down to patrol officers who will include in their discussions on key issues information that we know to have been placed there by foreign intelligence services uh, and uh, terrorist groups or extremist organizations. So I think one of the other things we need to look seriously at is how do we inoculate our profession um, from being inappropriately influenced by these conspiracy theories and, and, and other uh, content that's being pay, placed there to, to cause harm. I can I can certainly appreciate that. And I think what we what we've done is we've seen the cycle has continued. Uh, it doesn't matter what technology or what uh, what advancements we do. There's a lot of good that comes out of social media platforms. Uh, it's a it's a great tool. Uh, but it, like any tool that we find in this country, there are always there are always people who find a way to use it for extreme and uh, and violent uh, in you know, in pure in pure results. Well, and it's changing physical behavior too. I mean, yeah. look, when yeah. I worked narcotics. Um, we were trained to, you know, use pay phones and pagers and set up deals in parking lots or private locations and flash drugs and flash money. And there would be a very a physical exchange of drugs and money. Uh, and that's how we built cases. You know, today, increasingly, traffickers are relying on uh, the dark web, are setting up the transaction through Internet-based communication platforms. Um, cryptocurrencies are being exchanged and product is being um, is being shipped through the postal service or, or private shippers. So it's not just understanding the tactics are changed, but we need to think differently about how we train narcotics officers or investigators. You know, if, if those involved in human smuggling and, and facilitating the flow of migrants to the southern border are leveraging social media uh, and, you know, in, in essentially infiltrating the platforms used by this huge population of people south of the border, um, and encouraging them to come to the United States by spreading disinformation within those communities, then we need to understand that and incorporate that into our investigative and, uh, and enforcement activities. That's what I'm not seeing on a consistent basis. And I think, you know, for, for all of the law enforcement people out there, um, it, it's really important to understand that not only is, is the use of these platforms uh, and communication tools by, uh, not only are they being adopted, by pretty much every element of, of the criminal community, um, but it's changing their tactics, it's expanding the threat, and it's expanding the threat not only to our communities, but directly to law enforcement. And we have to incorporate our understanding of how these platforms are being used into our day-to-day -day operational practices, whether it's responding to a patrol car, conducting a narcotics investigation, or thinking about the you know, how crime is going to evolve in our community over the course of the next several months or years. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. To get the latest from the National FOP, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at GLFOP and on Instagram at FOP National. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.